America, and other free and open societies face crucial challenges and opportunities abroad that affect security and prosperity at home. This is a series of conversations with guests who bring deep understanding of today's battlegrounds and creative ideas about how to compete, overcome challenges, capitalize on opportunities, and secure a better future. I am H.R. McMaster. This is Battlegrounds. On today's episode of Battlegrounds, our focus returns to Russian political opposition to Putin's rule. Our guest is Vladimir Milov, a Russian opposition politician, publicist, economist, and economic advisor to the Russian opposition leader, Alexei Navalny. Mr. Milov served as Russia's Deputy Minister of Energy from May to October 2002, and has been a vocal critic of Vladimir Putin since leaving the Russian government. Amid a continued Russian assault on Ukraine, we welcome Mr. Milov back to Battlegrounds to discuss the status of the Russian opposition and what more can be done to advance Ukraine's fight for freedom. Vladimir Milov, welcome to Battlegrounds. Welcome to Stanford University and Hoover. It is great to be with you in person. Great talking to you again, General. And really excited to do this in person after all these COVID years. Well, I really enjoyed our last conversation. I think it was really informative for, for our viewers and our, and, our, and our listeners. And of course, since we've talked, there's, there have been some significant changes in the situation. We had the, you know, the very significant Ukrainian counteroffensive in the north that regained, uh, I think, about 1,200 kilometers of territory. And you've had the ongoing uh, offensive, Ukrainian offensive in the south near Kherson. And then the Russian response in terms of Putin deciding to mobilize a 300 million uh, draftees, you know, who will, co will come into service, mainly reservists, but those who will have to go through some additional training. And so I'd just like to ask you about that decision. What do you think led to that decision by Vladimir Putin? And, and, and what's your assessment of this? I mean, it, it seems to me it's, it's a stretch for Putin who said, hey, I'm just, I'm just doing the special military operation. Don't worry about it. I've, I've got this. And now he's going to the Russian people uh, in sort of a desperate situation. We've been uh, discussing a lot of Putin's strategic weaknesses in our previous conversation in March. And I think since then, the uh, situation only got worsened for him uh, because of this long protracted battle in Donbass and the first really painful couple of months and the losses. I think what is important to understand right now that before the invasion, Putin did not really have that many combat ready and fully trained troops. Maybe we're talking dozens of thousands uh, mm -hmm. within 100 max. Many of these troops have been decimated. Uh, so yeah. we can safely say that the ground army that was stationed uh, near Ukrainian border before the invasion in February is largely gone. So I think Putin was absolutely struck by the pace and uh, effectiveness of this Ukrainian counteroffensive, particularly in the Kharkiv uh, region, but also in the south. I think what we're uh, looking at now is him trying to hastily assemble like all the remaining available options for response. It's important to see that he's doing it all at once, like he's, he's throwing all the wild cards out at once. Mobilization, which he hesitated to do because of enormous costs and negative implications at home, but he still went to do it. Also, this sham referenda on uh, right. annexation of territories. 
they were planned to be held later, as Russian said, to better prepare them, right? right? But he scrambled all these plans and said, let's do them now to, to announce that this is now Russian territory. You mm -hmm. cannot advance, you know. Right. Uh, the other thing is a newly elevated level of nuclear threats. Mm -hmm. And yet another thing is this barbaric terrorist tactics of uh, bombarding Ukraine by, by airstrikes, uh, missiles, drones, and uh, so on, uh, to terrify them to show that any further advances will produce a great cost in civilian lives and infrastructure. So he's, he's doing it all at once, which means that first, uh, he was really struck by the swiftness of uh, Ukrainian advances, and he's like throwing out all the options that he has left uh, to scare them, to make right. them stop, to scare also uh, the international community. So it's important at this moment that we do not blink and continue to exert more pressures on him continue the successful liberation of Ukrainian lands. Well, that's just a great and succinct summary, I think, of what we've seen since the last time we spoke. Let's go through these one by one. The mobilization decision. You know, Putin cannot, the Russian military leadership can't, uh, can't improve the situation within the Russian military on a short timeline. I mean, if you look at the, the problems that they've had in lack of training, lack of really qualified leaders, the casualties that they've taken, which, you know, are very hard to reconstitute, but the logistics shortfalls, the lack of maintenance capabilities, they're running out of ammunition, it seems like. They've had tremendous uh, equipment losses. None of these problems can be resolved quickly. How, what are the prospects for this mobilization? How do you see, how do you assess its, its likelihood of any kind of success? And what is Putin thinking? How does he think that this mobilization, I think about 220,000 are mobilized at the time of our speaking. The plans are to mobilize a total of 300,000. I mean, what's going through his mind? How does he think that this can work? I think partially this decision was made out of desperation uh, because he understands that he needs physical men just to hold ground. Mm -hmm. uh, because Ukrainians are advancing swiftly and effectively, so he needs at least some persons pre present there on the ground to hold that advance. And also the other part of the problem is I think Putin and his generals, they think flat. They only think about figures on paper. Right. Generals want to justify their failures on the battlefield and say, oh, Vladimir Vladimirovich, we need more men. If you give us like 300,000 more men, then we'll manage up. So, Which is almost like an excuse for their failures, right? Uh, I mean, we just don't have enough men. I'm right? sure. So, so this, this was a move prepared by the generals who wanted to use the lack of manpower as an excuse for their failures, right? But Putin went on uh, further, and uh, I think they, they really have a hard time assessing the quality of the troops. We saw that since the uh, beginning of the war. They really believe that because they outnumbered Ukrainians in the beginning, uh, that might be a pretext for a successful uh, blitzkrieg. I think they have a hard time learning that quality matters. The one thing I'm sure Putin and his generals have not yet learned to understand is morale yeah. of the troops. I, I think they don't believe in it. I think they believe it's some artificial concept invented by Western pundits. Morale does not exist, only money and power. That's their uh, uh, thing. But, but, but here, really, we have Ukrainian troops which are outnumbered in terms of uh, weapons uh, and uh, ammo, uh, but they're really motivated to defend their country and stand up to Putin's barbarity, right? And I do have a lot of communication with people in Russia who have their relatives, military servicemen, actually stationed right now in Ukraine, my reading is that they have a hard time understanding what they're doing there. So, right. so this is the invader army with complete lack of any 
positive motivation except these tales about Ukrainian Nazis, which, you know, are even less believable when you are present on the ground and deal a lot with local population and see what is really happening. So quality, morale, yes, they underestimate that, which means that uh, their further losses will be absolutely devastating. But they think they can win the game simply with numbers, this kind of sort of flat understanding of uh, the military balance. Vladimir, I think you make a really important point. I mean, in, in his great book, The Face of Battle, John Keegan surveyed battles in the same kind of geographic area over four centuries. And what he said, he said, battles are aimed at the disintegration of human groups. And of course, he's emphasizing the, the morale factor and, 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 and how important it is for fighting units to have confidence in one another. They, you have soldiers tend to fight for each other, and they have to have confidence in one another and in their leadership. And when that confidence is absent, you know, those, those groups can disintegrate. And you know, how, what is your read of, of these units that are being thrown into the line? I'm thinking of you know, the, the counteroffensive around Kharkiv, where that was the first wave of, of replacements. Or these, some of these volunteer battalions were there, and, and they broke very quickly. Uh, we, some of our viewers may have seen the New York Times piece about, about uh, Russian soldiers calling home and saying, it's not what you're seeing on national television. You know, that we, we're not well organized. We don't have the right equipment. We have rusted machine guns. Is there a prospect for kind of a, a wider collapse based on, on, as you're putting it, morale and, and, uh, and, and the disintegration of, of the army? Most definitely. And this is important, what you say about disintegration, because this is exactly what we saw in the Kharkiv and in the south uh, in September and October. Like the whole units just leave everything behind and run because they perfectly understand their real capabilities and they understand that they have zero chance to hold ground in front of uh, Ukrainian advances. We see more of that. And also, again, we can speak of desperation here because we know that to train a combat, uh, able combat-ready force takes a lot of time. It takes right. not even months, but years, right? And here we have people who, you know, barely know how to hold an AK-47 really thrown uh, into battle. Plus, I have to say, uh, on a more serious note, uh, this is a systemic problem. The, the Russian army is under-equipped, under-supplied. Uh, it's not a bug. It's a feature. Because Putin, and you know, his, his uh, budgetary policy over the past years was always prioritizing the military manufacturing industries. Mm -hmm. This is about where two-thirds of the Russian budget goes. So that's the beloved child, you know, all this corrupt uh, defense industry-related oligarchy. Army received crumbles for, right. for, for crumbs from the table, right? This is the situation is not for, for training, for maintenance, for logistics. Supply, for, supply for is the weakest part. Right, right, uh, so, right. so uh, it's just it's just a few billion dollars a year. To, like before the war broke out, and uh, there was a sort of a real market exchange rate and free convertibility. I think the total supplies budget for the whole Russian army was just about six billion dollars a year. Like all of that. Uh, all of the, you know, electricity, all of the fuel, all of the food and uh, all of the uniforms and all that stuff. For the whole Russian army, $6 billion a year. That's next to nothing. They plan to increase it, but uh, not dramatically. Maybe by the magnitude of like 40-50% increase, which will still not resolve the catastrophic uh, supply crisis. And in, in terms of training the army, you spoke about the volunteer battalions. That was exactly what was happening all over the summer when they tried to recruit people in the regions for money to become contract servicemen and go there. 
we saw that they were uh, training in the training ground in Nizhny Novgorod, Mulina, which was built with the help of the Germans, unfortunately. Uh, this was going on for several months, and these were exactly the same battalions who left everything and ran. So uh, that we saw in uh, Kharkov. So uh, these uh, troops assembled in haste with this, you know, draft immediately sending them to the battlefield without basic supplies and basic training would be even worse. So we can expect really a lot of successful Ukrainian advances pretty soon, to which I think we will see more hysterical and barbaric reaction and retaliation from Putin. Vladimir, you, you, you spoke about the contrast between the way the war was being portrayed to the, to the Russian people on state media and the reality. And when, last time we talked, we were talking about the great pains to which Putin went to recruit people from small villages, from rural areas, from outlying areas, so that when there are casualties, you know, maybe nobody notices, you know, and they were trying to really downplay the number of casualties. But isn't it inescapable now? And, and are the Russian people beginning to access new sources of information? And what effect do you think that's going to have on popular support for the war and popular support for, for Putin? Putin is still trying to prioritize drafting people uh, now under the mobilization in villages, poorer regions, poorer towns, not really massively touching uh, the capitals who have a habit of a much better uh, political organization and defending their rights. And of course, the prisoners, right? We had Prigozhin go yeah, to prisons to, yeah, yeah. to say, okay, exactly. hey, join up. And To my reading, uh, you know, the, the, the prison population more used this uh, draft as a way to get out, and right. then some of them escaped and so on. And, and by the way, those are the last people you want in an army, by the way. I mean, and I haven't uh, seen any reports of them actually fighting effectively, right? right? So this is, again, one more sign of really desperation, reaching out to all these, you know, murderers, rapists, and, and so on. It's a sign of uh, desperation. But going back to the draft, uh, yes, it's, it spills over already to big cities, to capitals, and more and more uh, population is actually beginning to realize what is really going on. I think uh, to, to illustrate, many people in the West don't really get it uh, in what kind of propaganda and disinformation bubble Russian are, Russians are living in. Uh, Levada Center recently done a survey where they shown that only 10% of Russians were aware that during this war, fighting was going on in Kiev region. Only 10%. 60, 70% think that, uh, think that uh, the warfare is only limited to Donbass region right. where Russian television says that Ukrainians were doing some sort of genocide of the Russian-speaking people. Only now, with this mobilization, uh, a large uh, number of Russians are beginning to learn about the failed offensive uh, toward Kiev uh, and toward Odessa. Yes, right? about the, the right. scale of the whole thing, about mm -hmm. what is actually going on. And uh, we seem, we'll see more data in the coming weeks, but there was clearly a uh, a lot of information suggesting that the reaction was overwhelmingly negative. Putin was saying initially that this is my war, somewhere on television, it will never touch you, you will leave as previously nothing, nothing dangerous. But now he says, no, I failed, I need you. Uh, all of you will be mobilized in a mandatory, often even brutal manner, sent to the battlefields. Obviously, society was not ready for this. You, you mentioned this already. So he's, you know, of course, he's got to be concerned about maybe the lack of popular support that might follow a realization that the the Russian people have been lied to about this special military operation. 
but he's going more and more to indiscriminate use of fires, which you've seen across the whole war, right? With you know the destruction of Mikolayev and so many and Bucha and so many other uh, cities. Uh, but he seems to be doubling down now on the indiscriminate use of firepower against innocent civilians. This new commander who he's appointed, that seems to be his specialty. He was, he was complicit in the destruction of one of the most beautiful cities in the Middle East, in Aleppo, and he's applying those same tactics now. What do you think this bodes for the war effort and obviously for the plight of the, the Ukrainian people? This is a classical tactic of terror that we saw Putin using many times in Chechnya, in Syria, uh, absolutely indiscriminate bombardments of uh, civilians, uh, civilian infrastructure to sow fear and to actually break the will for defending themselves, right? And force people to flee and, and just leave, uh, leave the territory. That's exactly right. Uh, the, this uh, appointment of the new commander of the war, uh, General Suravikin, who was uh, previously the uh, commander of the Russian operation in Syria. Importantly for your viewers, you remember that there was a, a coup d'etat in the Soviet Union in August 91, right. and the three people died in Moscow defending freedom, defending legitimate Russian government. He was the guy, Suravikin, who commanded this very military vehicle, which killed uh, three people, for which he was tried later, but then let go and so on. So, so he's an absolutely brutal killer throughout his career. And his tactics is like bomb everybody to the Stone Age and so fear, so total uh, destruction and so on. I believe that uh, this appointment, uh, after all, will be counterproductive for two reasons. First, uh, he commanded Air Force. So his tactics was to bomb everything from the air. In Syria, where you did not have a real, you know, well-armed resisting army and so on against a regular army of Assad, it worked. In Ukraine, it won't uh, because, as I said in the beginning, Putin's ground forces are largely destroyed. You cannot solve the problems with air power alone. And second, as we know from General Suravikin's bio, uh, his approach is, you know, to, to, to intimidate, to threaten, to yell at, at uh, the commanders and officers and soldiers and sowing terror just to scare them so they go up and fight. You can understand that this is not a proper motivation, particularly in these sort of conditions. So Russian military servicemen under strong pressure from here, from there, Ukrainians advancing with modern weapons, supplies are poor, you know, motivation is poor. And here you have generals and officers who are yelling at them, threatening them. Will that work effectively? I mean, everyone can guess, but I'm sure Suravikin's methods will yield no results in this particular military situation. And it won't solve so many of the other problems that he has, even though they're striking Ukrainian energy infrastructure, right, to try to maybe have people face the prospect of freezing in, in the wintertime and affect their will. I think you're right, it's going to have the exact opposite effect. But what we've seen the Ukrainians be successful at recently is striking supply depots and, and logistics lines of communication, resupply lines that have really constrained what's available uh, for the Russian army. And we've seen Russia going to other sources of support, uh, Iran in particular. And it seems as if Iran is now exporting their, not only their kamikaze drones, but maybe even their short and medium range missile systems there are Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps trainers and assemblers of these of these kamikaze drones uh, in Ukraine and in Russia. Uh, is this a sense of uh, desperation, do you think, I mean, uh, on the part of, of Putin as well? Or do you think 
that this could have a real prospect for Putin bringing in other parties into the conflict. Buying ammunition from North Korea is another maybe example. Well, first, I have to say that this is very right, what you're saying about the effectiveness of cutting supply lines. That, that's a, a key point in Ukrainian tactic at the moment, and it seems to be very effective because uh, Russian troops, they're already starving, but more starvation because of destroyed supply lines would cause them to run, as we saw in Kharkiv, as we saw in the uh, Ukrainian South. So, so, so that's a very, very good tactic because you have a challenging task of taking over cities and urban warfare is not a pleasant exercise, right? So what they did in Kharkiv is they're surrounding cities, cutting supply lines, forcing Russian troops to flee. That is as good as can possibly be. Now with Iran, yes, uh, this is also a sign of desperation because yes, Iran might supply some stuff like drones, but these are finite. Mm -hmm. Drones, missiles, they're still finite, you know. Mm -hmm. there, is, there is no perpetual source of victory. And, and the, all of this does not solve the fundamental problem that we discussed, the ground force. The destroyed, poorly equipped, poorly trained, absolutely incapable ground force, which cannot even hold ground. How does Iranian or North Korean equipment solve that problem? Zero. So it can only like pumps on the Titanic, you know. It can only buy Putin some time, unfortunately bring about more terror, more destructions and so on. But I'm pretty sure that with Iran, uh, I, I doubt that Iranians really wanted to jump in. I think Putin has probably threatened them with something because they really depend a lot on Russians, as we know from the recent leaks, even with the nuclear uh, technology and so sure. on. Russians doing a lot to help sustain the Iranian regime. So when Putin went there, he probably said to them, like, listen, I'm gonna cut all this off if you do not supply hardware uh, that I need. So I, I'm not sure they really wanted to jump onto the sinking boat of right. helping the loser Putin, right? I'm sure that they are doing this simply because they were uh, also threatened and blackmailed. Yeah. Vladimir, we're talking about really Putin's efforts to, to intimidate the Ukrainian people, to break their will, and your assessment that that's, that that's going to fail. I think obviously what we have to do is help the Ukrainians in any way we can. To, to stop the Russians from committing, continuing to commit mass murder against innocents and to attack their energy infrastructure. And I think this involves you know, combinations of weapons we've been holding back from them, right? The, you know, the longer range fires capabilities tied to long range surveillance uh, and intermediate range air defense to shoot down these Iranian drones, to, you know, to, to, to shoot down the, these missiles. Uh, and, but of course, I, I think that there might be more that we can do. Any thoughts that you, that you have about what more can be done to bolster Ukrainian will as, as they're under assault uh, by, by the Kremlin here? Uh, first, uh, there's a big question is how many you know, weapons in stock does the Western countries have to supply the Ukraine? Because it really takes a lot to produce like new HIMARS uh, systems and so on. So obviously the, the free world was caught not to prepare for this conflict. And you, you can't just like throw them out of, 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 of your pocket and so on. But uh, first, air defense, of course. Air defense is a must. Uh, we see that Ukrainian air defense has been showing remarkable resilience to yeah. Putin's attack, but still, a lot of this stuff gets through. Missiles, drones, and so on. So air defense, it's a must uh, because it has a potential to greatly reduce the effectiveness of uh, Putin's terror bombardment uh, tactics, and that's a key problem at the moment. The second issue I hear from the people who also visited the battlefield that uh, there is a critical shor shortage of heavy weaponry like tanks and armored vehicles. Like they say, 
in Kherson area, like when Americans are at war somewhere, they always travel in the battlefield in Humvees, Bradleys, and so on. Right. But Ukrainians don't have enough of this stuff. Right. So they travel in unarmored uh, cars right. and trucks, which also greatly reduce losses, particularly losses of trained personnel. That is right. uh, painful and so on. So uh, for, for successful Ukrainian advance, more heavy uh, weaponry tanks and armored vehicles is definitely needed. So I know this is all uh, under discussion, but I think that this conversation is also to help people understand that, listen, Putin is on the run. Ukraine can liberate a lot of territory quickly. Putin's army is not prepared to defend them. It's really worth an effort. It's, it's really worth to doing just a little in a short while to make sure that Ukraine advances uh, successfully. Absolutely. And as an armored cavalry officer, I'm glad to hear you talk about protected mobility and mobile protected firepower. I think those were essential, especially because it, you have to protect yourself against this massive Russian artillery capability and, and to get your infantry into positions of, of advantage and support them with that mobile protected firepower. You know, maybe this is a good bridge into talking about your, you know, European uh, partners in, in NATO in particular and, and the support that they've pledged. I think some countries, especially in Eastern Europe, have done everything they can. I mean, massive efforts, especially when you consider per capita efforts. Um, Germany and France have been lagging a little bit, and I think Putin is hoping to affect Europe's will as well, and especially with using that energy supplies uh, as a coercive tool. We saw the, uh, the destruction of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. I'd love to hear your analysis of that. You know, why would Putin destroy the Nord Stream 2 pipeline? But what do you think the prospects are for sustaining European will as they come under duress associated with limited energy supplies? Well, first, I have to say that Europe has been remarkably united and effective in uh, responding to the war with the reconsideration of the decades of policy like Germany, who, was, who wanted to be pacifist all the time, but now it's uh, uh, into militarily uh, supporting and supplying Ukraine with weapons and so on. And that's a good move. However, it is not yet time to congratulate ourselves. And we have a difficult winter ahead where many people in, in, uh, among the European public are actually asking more questions about inflation and energy prices. So I see what is happening. A uh, majority of the population of Western Europe is still in favor of supporting Ukraine. But the importance of that topic recedes somewhere to like, you know, 10th, 15th position as compared to economic issues of the day, that's a dangerous trend because, you know, politicians are, you know, demand side animals. They respond to whatever, whatever the public uh, demands the most. So uh, this is a dangerous trend. And I'm really very afraid that some countries begin backtracking already, like with this new eight uh, package of sanctions, there was uh, an idea to ban export of Russian diamonds and diamond producer Alrosa. But Belgium blocked it. Belgium is by far the biggest uh, European importer. It imports almost half of Russian diamonds, uh, worth $1.5 billion a year. That's a bad sign right. that some countries are backtracking economically and, and so on. So let's see. I'm trying myself to do whatever I can to maintain this uh, European unity and effectiveness of uh, response. So I'm, I'm pretty sure it's important that Americans continue to convince them and not to blink and uh, not to give up. On the energy side, again, resilience was good. Putin tried uh, to achieve a failure of uh, 
the gas storage injection season in Europe uh, by cutting off supplies as early as in July. Like Gazprom has nearly completely stopped supplies to Europe, uh, but Europe uh, achieved the success filling of storages over 90%. So, so that had failed. Let's see how they pass uh, through the winter. Again, not congratulate ourselves yet, but the resilience is there. The capability is there. What I'm afraid of is that uh, uh, there's a looming oil embargo, EU oil embargo on Russia that is to come into effect uh, for crude oil in December, for refined products uh, in February. Um, it's important, it's essential to make sure that they hold on to their promise to completely ban uh, Russian oil and refined products. Because there are some voices, like we're running short of diesel, maybe we need to offer Putin something, trade-off and, and sort of force a peace deal because we can't go without diesel and so on. Oil embargo will be a very effective measure in addition to existing sanctions to deprive uh, Putin from uh, much needed revenue to finance the war, to sustain uh, the damaged economy and so on. So it's, it's important that Europeans stick to their promise of fully enforcing the oil embargo. I think that is a key test for European unity so far. And on Nord Stream, uh, again, obviously, I think everybody realizes that it, it could have only been done by Russia. Uh, but I think uh, because Nord Stream was not needed anyway, Putin cut off uh, whole supplies voluntarily. So my reading uh, is that he wanted to send a signal, your own European subsea infrastructure, mm -hmm. pipelines from North Sea, cables, right. whatever, is not protected. We can, if you go ahead and continue with sanctions, continue to support Ukraine, we're going to cut it off. You, you see that it also happened in retaliation to successful Ukrainian offensive. So it was right. just just even right. another part of this combined. And, and on the same uh, day that yes. the new pipeline was opened between Ex Norway and Denmark. Exactly, and exactly. So so their message was like, we we know where, where your vulnerable subsea infrastructure is located. Right. That's the way we can destroy it. And you won't even find out, right? So I think that that was the message done to a pipeline which was not needed anyway, Russians uh, seized uh, supply. And of course, there are rumors, too, that they also conducted cyber attacks or an undersea cable attack on Scottish islands and Danish islands. So I think uh, that is right. And I also think that uh, European governments might not even disclose all the information because it's sensitive. It's all right. vulnerable. So uh, probably they know more about Russia doing all of this notorious stuff to uh, subsea infrastructure. That's that's really a big danger here. And cyber attacks that, that uh, temporarily affected you know some some computers at U.S. U.S. airports as well. So, uh, of course, this this is a, we're talking a little bit about how now this conflict has never been contained from the beginning. Obviously, we've had refugees that have spilled across borders. We have Russia really shutting down the, the Black Sea. You know, we had the disruption of, of energy markets, but but food markets as well. And now I think we're seeing even a broader internationalization of the of the conflict in terms of the Iranians coming in and the the the, the, uh, the North Koreans uh, we, we talked about. But what what do you see as the key international dimensions of the conflict. Now, Putin didn't travel much. Now he's traveling quite a bit, it seems like. He he attended the Shanghai Cooperation uh, Organization meeting. How do you see international efforts uh, relative to the conflict? And, uh, and what is Putin trying to achieve? Well, first, it is remarkable what you said, because Putin's behavior in the past few months is such a radical departure from what has been done previously for like almost three years, he's been sitting in his bunker, 
barely allowing anyone in, like not going anywhere. He only, since uh, the COVID... See at the end of those long tables? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right yeah. With, since with, the COVID uh, began, he only had three foreign visits. Uh, the Geneva summit with Biden, then he visited India a year ago, and then he went uh, to the opening of the Olympics uh, in China. Now, if you look at the past three, four months, he goes around like a carpet beggar. Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Iran, We've never seen such intensity of foreign trips in years. And you see that he also, he, uh, he used to uh, get late for meetings with top international leaders. Now he sits there waiting for, for uh, Mr. Modi, for president of Kyrgyzstan and so on. And this is all on camera. And uh, there was uh, such a humiliating speeches as the fierce speech by uh, Tajikistan president Rahmon, who says, Vladimir Vladimirovich, we want respect from you. Don't, and Putin was sitting there nodding. That is, that is a radical departure. Previously, he would not listen to, to that sort of talk. So it, I think it also should be encouraging because it shows that Putin is in bad, bad need of help. He's out there traveling all these places looking for help, trying to assemble the coalition that will help him not lose uh, in Ukraine. So far, it's not working out too well. He's been not granted major assistance and major play players like China are really refusing to fully back him up. Uh, and I think also his nuclear threats are escalating the, the possibility that these large uh, third countries like China, India, Brazil, South Africa would finally uh, join the camp of critics. I think he understands that risk. So there are limits to how much he can escalate. And so far, he's able, his uh, efforts to produce a pro-Putin international coalition that will save him were not terribly successful. Vladimir, you mentioned the nuclear threats. This is what I was going to ask you about next. I mean, there have been, of course, a, lo a lot of concern, uh, which you have to take some, a threat like that seriously, uh, about, about the use of nuclear weapons, his, his telegraphed use or the threatened use of, of nuclear weapons. What, what is your assessment of... of the, 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 of that threat, how serious it is, and 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 uh, you know, what do you think the likelihood is of the use of a, of a nuclear weapon in Ukraine? First, I think we should take this threat seriously and prepare a contingency and response plan. That's point number one. And when Putin knows it that there is a plan, if we do it calmly, not sort of saying, "Oh my God, we're all going to die," but really having a response plan, that will be a containing uh, factor in itself. Like, uh, you know, uh, with the invasion of February 24th, I think he was encouraged a great deal by those intelligence reports that Kyiv will fall in 96 hours and, right. and so on. Not, not that anymore. Uh, we need to clearly show him that he's going to lose if he's going to go nuclear. My take is that uh, he understands that. There is zero military gain from using a tactical nuclear weapon. Mm -hmm. Again, coming back to what we began with, uh, it cannot be supported with the advance from ground troops. There right. is no equipped, trained ground army that right. is... To operate in a radiological environment is, takes an extraordinary amount of training. Yeah. Uh, uh, second thing is, uh, you remember this Chernobyl contamination maps uh, of 1980s. So hitting Ukraine with nuclear is the same as hitting Russia. Because radioactive contamination, it does not follow orders from the Kremlin, right. <laughs> can go east. Uh, one important thing is that um, uh, the regions adjacent to Ukraine, Russian regions, are producing about uh, a third of the Russian agricultural products and food. Krasnodar, mm -hmm. Rostov, Bryansk, Belgorod, Voronezh. Mm -hmm. I remember in 1980s, after Chernobyl, 
we were very suspicious in Moscow about which region the meat and grocery store came from. Mm -hmm. Was it from Bryansk? Right. Does right. it have a chance? To... So there will be a huge domestic uh, problem, plus the international response. I think uh, one of the key problems is that these big countries like India and Brazil and others would clearly condemn Putin and, and the use of uh, nuclear weapons. So zero gain, a lot of negative consequences. We're not even talking strategic nuclear confrontation uh, with, with the United States and with the West because I think Putin clearly understands that that will be the end. Yeah. In several hours it will be finished. And again, people are saying, is he suicidal? We don't know, but his recent behavior, you know, visiting all these Asian uh, capitals begging for help, give us the idea that he wants to save right. his regime. Right. Not like destroy the world because he is, he, he is up to it. Vladimir, what would, you, what would you say to people who are still making the argument? I think this is a diminishing number of people. Hey, we need to give Putin an off-ramp. You know, we lead, need to leave, you hear the other metaphor, we need to leave something on his plate. What do you say to that kind of an argument? I would say that we know this gentleman very, very well. He's been in power for nearly a quarter of a century. We know anything that possibly can be known about him. The, on top of that list, the number one piece of knowledge that we accumulated, and that can be proven with any you know, of the historical records, is that whenever you give him something, whenever you surrender to his blackmail and pressure, it gives something away just to calm him down. He takes this clearly as his victory. Right. And as a, uh, as a platform to sort of to build on. Okay, my blackmail worked one time, so next time I'm going to accumulate more strength and strike again to demand bigger stuff from you. Because uh, in, in 2014, he only demanded Crimea and Eastern Ukraine. Now, before this war, he demanded that NATO returns to 1997 borders. Uh, right. No less than that, right? So what if you give him off-ramp now? They will cheer. They will pop up champagne in the Kremlin. They say, okay, we replenish, regroup, and then strike again with more force, knowing that this blackmail works. So, sorry, but this is, I think it's so obvious, General, isn't right. it? I think so, absolutely. And it would give him the space, to, as you say, to declare victory, to try to reconsolidate power internally as well. And that's what I'd like to talk with you about more. Of course, we've been discussing around this issue in terms of the number of casualties coming back. But there are other strains on, on Russia as well, not only seeing so many of their young men killed in, in, in this brutal assault on, on Ukraine and, and what I think is a futile assault on, on Ukraine, uh, but also the effects on the Russian economy. So what is your prognosis for Russian popular will and, and, uh, and support you know, for, for Putin and, and his special military operation? Well, on the economy, it's important. I keep writing a lot about that, so please follow me on all this uh, social media. I'm posting a lot in English about the effects of sanctions. What Putin is trying to do is to use a handful of these Potemkin indicators like ruble exchange rate, nominally low unemployment, to say that, oh, we're weathering through the, the economies in, uh, in a good shape. But uh, on one hand, if you look, the ruble rate is hurting the exporters. Steelmakers are weeping and complaining. Of, Listen, you got to weaken the ruble because we suffer losses. We cut production. Yeah. Unemployment, yeah, nominally it's below four percent. But uh, Russian statistics agency recently published a number uh, of the people who are all these all these forms of hidden unemployment, like downtime, unpaid leave, and part-time working week. That's four point three million people, or thirteen percent of a corporate workforce. In manufacturing industries alone, 
of the total workforce on all these forms of unpaid leave. That's de facto unemployment, except not being called that way. So the problems in the economy are mounting. Sanctions are having very serious systemic and profound effect. Mm -hmm. It just takes strategic patience right. to make them deliver the result. I saw the recent reports of this auto plant that closed outside of St. Petersburg because of supply constraints. Are exactly. Are seeing more of this happening? Anything, anything with uh, complexity. Mm -hmm. uh, car making industry, transport machine building, engine production, it's like anything which involves a lot of components, a lot of modern technologies which have been cut off because of the sanctions is suffering. Like transport machine building is like 60-70% output down year on year in terms of locomotives, coaches, uh, for, for, for railroad and so on. So uh, again, and this leads to unemployment because these complex sectors are very job intensive. So I explain this in detail, like if you look at across the sectors of the economy, across the markets, they're significantly down, significantly depressed. So do not let uh, yourself be fooled by a handful of these macro indicators that Putin is trying to maintain, like, you know, to show that sanctions are not working. Yes, they are. How about, how about discontent in regions other than those surrounding Moscow and St. Petersburg? You know, we've seen some unrest in the, in the Far East and then the Dagestan up, uprisings. Uh, Putin had been very concerned about this over recent years, especially in Vladivostok, when he tried to re remove that governor and, and, and it backfired on him. Uh, do you see, do you see there a, a possibility for internal dissension and unrest focused more on, on uh, a, a regional basis? Uh, the discontent is mounting and mounting rapidly. But uh, the problem is that we now know that the destruction of organized opposition in 2021, a right. year before the invasion, was done on purpose right. to make sure that... The second issue. Uh, yeah. Because Russians are protesting the war, but this is poorly organized, spontaneous and chaotic, which means that it has little visible uh, effect. The numbers are relatively big. There, there, there are six-digit numbers of Russians that have been protesting since the war began. But because it's disseminated, not organized, it's mm -hmm. also less visible. So imprisonment of Navalny and imprisonment of a lot of his colleagues and uh, many people been forced into exile, uh, that had something that had a very strong effect. So mm -hmm. there is no organizing force on the ground. We try to recreate it, so you will see protests down the road. Mm -hmm. But it's difficult in the absence of legally allowed opposition force. You know, we're all declared extremists and are right. under criminal uh, arrest warrants now. So, uh, but we still try to recreate that capacity. So you will see protests uh, down the road. But generally, I say, I'd say that there is a dangerous vacuum because here you have Putin with extremely centralized superpower. Right. Here you have population which has been depoliticized de and uh, uh, disconnected from politics for a long time. But you don't have organized opposition. And you also don't have the elites in the Western political analysis sense. Mm -hmm. People always speak about Russian elites, but there are no elites. Mm -hmm. There are only loyal yes men and yes women. The people that Putin's created yeah. as elites, right? I you mean, saw this yeah. uh, Security Council meeting before the invasion. Sure. They were like chicken, you know, and he's, right. he's the boss in the room and he treats them as first graders, right? Yeah, right. All these like ever powerful figures, uh, some of the Western political analysts portray they were like chicken there. So, so right. this, that's important. It's a dangerous vacuum. So uh, there are, there's no mechanism for public discontent to translate into political change. Elites destroyed, organized opposition destroyed, 
a very, you know, raw population which is unhappy but doesn't have the mechanism. That, that's a revolutionary situation, classic as we know it from books. And I've heard that there, there are more political prisoners in Russia today than there were in the Soviet Union in yes. the 1950s. And, and uh, do you see that there could be any point at which the internal security services could, uh, could, you know, could begin to doubt uh, you know, that, Putin's, that Putin is, is the best thing for the country and, and uh, stop enforcing kind of the, you know, the brutal repression that we've seen of, of the protest movement and, and, and the opposition movement? The problem is that Putin has been specifically breeding, you know, this kind of, you know, well-paid uh, and uh, well-motivated uh, special forces like FSB, the security service, right. plus his presidential guard, uh, they were really put above anybody else. Because in Soviet Union, you had a, like a relative balance between Interior Ministry, KGB and Ministry of Defense. What Putin did in the past 20 years, he took the FSB guys, which is a successor of the KGB. And these are and, the people you see clad in black armored. Yes, yes. With the and, knee pads well, and the, the batons. The and, SS, yeah, uh, right, de facto, yeah. right? Let's use the, the, the analogy. He put them on top of the army, on top of the Interior Ministry. If you look at the deputy ministers in there, they're all from KGB, basically, yeah. right? So there was a, like a KGB takeover of the whole system. And these people are the elite. They are well paid well-motivated, they're also very imperialist and anti-Western, and they also have a lot to lose. Because if they change the system and so on, they know that they will be the first ones, like, you know, Radka Mladic or Radovan Karadzic and so on, all these Serb war criminals who were brought into Hague, I mean, they are the first candidates to go, which means that they will defend themselves uh, to the end. So, so the thing to, to understand about Russia, is that FSB so tightly controls everything mm. that really is for me? It's hard to expect that they would allow uh, any changes, any kind of uh, fissures or, or, or opposition. Yeah. Could you explain to our viewers? You know that Putin is, of course, uh, very much preoccupied with preventing color revolutions, which he's been yeah. he's been referencing explicitly, even with the the joint statement he made with Xi Jinping before the Olympics. But also, he's very worried about kind of a palace coup, and he studied what happened to, to Gorbachev. Could you explain how the palace guard works and the mechanisms he's put in place to protect himself? Yeah, I really think that anyone who, who talks lightly about the potential coup d'etat and overthrowing Putin, I, I think that people should look in what mechanisms of defense uh, and, uh, you know, siege uh, against the, uh, the, the potential plotters Putin built over the past uh, 20 years. Like when Gorbachev was deposed in August 91, KGB cut him off communications, which they controlled. Putin transferred communications from FSB, the security service, to his personal presidential guard. It's called Spetsvyaz Fasuo RC. Secret government communications reports to his personal palace guard, not to the nationwide security service which means that he also listens to, to everybody else. Uh, when I talk to my former colleagues who are still in the state, state service now, they say, listen, we are afraid to talk one-on-one -on -one about Putin and his actions because predominant chance that it will be recorded and reported. A meeting of three, four, five people uh, discussing to depose Putin is, I'd say, impossible. Impossible. Zero chance. You never know who would snitch on you and report uh, to him. No guarantees at all, right? So I'd say this talk about potential internal plotting is premature. 
my bet uh, is again i'd say these people who are called elites are no longer de facto elites mm -hmm. these are very loyal very afraid and tightly controlled folks so i'd rather bet on the mounting public discontent that there will be public pressure on Putin rather than elite pressure. Uh, to me, this is a more plausible scenario. And what are the trends that you've been tracking in terms of uh, the prospects for a more popular uprising and discontent and opposition to Putin has been where people get information. Can you talk to our viewers about how that has shifted over time since the beginning of the so-called special military operation? That is very important because, uh, you know, a very broad range of different pollsters including those absolutely depoliticized, like commercial advertisers simply seeking which, which media to place ads in, they all report the same thing. Uh, since the beginning of the war, uh, collapse in trust and viewership of the state media has been enormous. They, uh, the, the figures from various uh, polls would say that only 25-30% of Russians are watching and completely trust state media. This is about halved from February, right? Mm -hmm. So there was like 50 and about 30 or less uh, now. At the same time, uh, viewership and attention to the independent social media, primarily YouTube and Telegram, grew enormously. We are almost even with them now. Uh, so uh, like Navalny Live YouTube channel has over 30 million unique viewers from Russia in the past six months. Mm -hmm. That's a lot. Wow. It's almost the same as they have. So we have our audience versus uh, their audience. And it's important to keep it going. Uh, our broadcasting matters a lot. We really contribute to changing the uh, public opinion in Russia. So the trend will be inevitable. And, uh, you know, how, how does this translate into political action? Because Putin destroyed all the political mechanisms, we do not know. But what we do know also from historical experience like when the society is largely unhappy about what's going on, it finds its way out one way or another. Vladimir, mm -hmm. I think you're at the forefront of what is most important in the competition with authoritarian regimes, uh, whether it's Iran or, 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 or Russia uh, or China or North Korea, is to try to, you know, poke holes or <laughs> in, in those great firewalls that they develop and and to be able to reach people with alternative sources of information. I think it's amazingly important work that you're, that you're doing. Could you share like some of some of the principles you think are most important in doing that to try to reach populations that are fed a steady diet of propaganda and, and misinformation? Yes, obviously there are uh, certain systemic patterns because um, one thing which people don't like is when they are lied to right. all the time. So, and this is what autocrats do because they create a sort of fantasy world which has little to do with reality, but it explains their actions in, as they think, in a logical way. Like this whole uh, false narrative of Ukrainian genocide of Russian-speaking peoples in Donbass, right. which is non-existent, but uh, Russian propaganda over the years made so many stories about it that unfortunately uh, uh, Russian people, many Russian people believe this story. So exposure of lies on different occasions uh, leads to erosion of trust. Like when we're being lied here, there, everywhere, all the time, that means that probably, like, you know, what we used to say that, uh, okay, you say that Ukraine was doing a genocide of Russians, who told you this? Television. Now let's check, uh, what do you think about television's information about the status of our economy? Low inflation, prices under control, wages growing. Do you believe mm. that? No. 
because you see it every day. What's the reality? Now, if they lie uh, to you all the time about all these other things that you know about, right? So why they would tell the truth about this thing? So exposing lies of dictatorial regimes is is really the way forward to to reduce trust and to uh, increase interest in alternative, truthful sources of information. I also have to say that it's important for the people in the West to understand. And we had this discussion long before Putin invaded Georgia, invaded Ukraine. We said, listen, human rights oppression at home will not stop in Russian borders. It will be exported. Once dictators have this, you know, taste of lawlessness, which goes unpunished, they continue at the international stage. And we see China threatening Taiwan. We see Iran projecting its nasty influence in Yemen, Lebanon, Syria, and elsewhere in the Middle East. These folks don't stop with the brutality at home. They export it abroad, which which means that, you know, containing this the spread of dictatorship and tyranny and uh, advancing freedom is key to global uh, security and preventing wars like that. And you, I think you're making just a really important point about how important it is to support the Ukrainians who are at the forefront of this of this competition. So I'm going to I'm going to ask you the, I guess the hardest question last, which is kind of unfair I guess, but but uh, how do you see this resolving? I mean, or how do you see it evolving? Maybe I should say in the next months and years? What are some of the alternative futures we ought to consider and maybe some of the key indicators we ought to be tracking to know what, what kind of future we're headed toward in terms of the situation in Ukraine, but obviously the effect on international security and markets, but, but really on, on Russia as well? Well, first, um, the good news is that this will be over uh, and we'll see, we'll see amazing Ukrainian advances in the coming months simply because of the situation on the battlefield that we are discussing. Putin does not have the power and capacity to contain liberation of Ukrainian territories. But the bad news is that he will retaliate. Uh, he will retaliate in an absolutely mad, brutal, barbaric manner. We saw that recently. So we'll hear a lot more tragic news, really tragic news, which is very sad. But we need to be calm. We need to be concentrated. We need to understand that the prospect of Putin's demise is very real. We are on course. We just need to keep the course. Do not blink. No off-ramps. No this running around. Maybe because we're short of diesel in the winter, we need to sort of give up. Because whenever you blink, whenever you recede uh, because of some current problems, he will take it as a sign of victory, as a stimulus to repeat if the blackmail worked, I mean, I will use it again and again. So this is, uh, this is really, uh, you know, a game of nerves uh, in a lot of ways. And defending freedom, it's not just about Ukraine as, as a nation. Ukraine is a beautiful nation and it's a tragedy that's being destroyed, but it's also more, more that is going on. It's, a, it's an assault of a free world on a democratic rule-based order. So uh, we need to, be, to exercise strategic patience with Putin all the bad news uh, aside, uh, we, there is a pattern to, uh, path to victory, and we need to understand it and, you know, calmly push forward our common cause, defending freedom, defending Ukraine. Okay, I wasn't completely honest with you. I do have one more question then. How do you think about Russia after Putin? Could you share with our viewers, you know, I mean, uh, we would all would like to do that. How do you think about Russia after Putin? I have a deep, profound belief in my people, the Russian people, and I know what I'm speaking about. Uh, during my career, I visited more than 60 regions of Russia. That's like three quarters 
I literally talked to tens of thousands of people across Asia. I have great audience in the country. Millions of millions of people are watching me and I have a lot of feedback. This is an absolutely normal European nation. Uh, we've just been duped, uh, detached from politics, seduced by economic growth of the early Putin's era, and then trapped into a very you know, repressive cage from, from which there is no way out. A lot of people, millions of Russians, have hopes and aspirations for normalcy, for freedom, for the basic rule of law. Uh, they, the one, if, when you talk to Russians, the, the, the main thing which they hate is this what they call bezakonia, lawlessness. They want uh, to, to, to live a life with a normal, when rules are working, laws are working and so on. It's not the principle when the bosses can afford anything and they're just, you know, rightless serfs, right? They want a normal system. So they just don't know how to achieve that. This is where we jump in and try to teach them. But generally, no matter what many people say, I see great potential in the Russian nation. It will be free. It will be normal. It will be obedient to international uh, rules and norms and will be peaceful and have good relations with everybody. We will see it in our lifetime. And knowing that, you know, my people are good. I mean, Russians are good. I will never stop doing anything I can to achieve that, and uh, I'm sure this is possible. Well, Vladimir Minov, I can't think of a better way to end this <laughs> than, than with that statement. Thank you so much. Thanks for your courage, and thanks for your extraordinary insight about an extraordinarily complex problem. Thank, thank you. For thank you, joining. General. Always a pleasure, and happy to talk to you. Yeah. yeah. Great to see you. Thank you. Great thank to you. see you. Battlegrounds is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work, to hear more of our podcasts, or view our video content, please visit hoover.org.